Loving Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence again this morning, Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the songs, and many of them, Father of Heaven, were songs of experience, and we thank you for the experience we've had in knowing thee and the experience of salvation, being forgiven, being empowered to have victory over sin, being guided, directed. You've blessed us with many things throughout our life. Each one of us can say that. And I ask that thou will bless this audience and then help me as I speak that I may say something to be of a benefit to someone that's here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was thinking as uh, Brother Curtis was uh, saying earlier on, you know, about somebody being sleepy, and I can understand that uh, when you get my age. In fact, today is my birthday. I'm 85 years old today, and I thank God for, thank God for his grace and his goodness, and I know that I, I won't have these opportunities uh, very much longer I know that. I'm down, as the old fellow said, I'm down to the short rows. And uh, we're nearing the end of it all. But I thank God for the journey. <laughs> I, I thank God for the journey. I've been serving God for almost 70 years now. But anyway, I do thank God for all of his kindness. I thank you, uh, Brother Bartlett for the opportunity he's given me. Uh, to preach here this morning, and I pray that God will bless what I have to say. Before I say this, I'm uh, thinking of what Brother Curtis said about me wanting people to pay attention, and, uh, and I do. I remember in a revival meeting one time, I was preaching, and this young couple, they were a teenage couple, they were sitting near the back, they were sitting on the inside of the main aisle down through the church, and uh, they were not paying attention to me at all. They were just sitting there talking, probably having a good time telling what, each other what they are going to do uh, after the meeting was over. I don't know what they are talking about. But I, I mentioned it two or three times from the pulpit. I said, now pay attention to me. I was preaching on a very serious subject, uh, the danger of going to hell. And they didn't pay no attention. So I got down out of the pulpit and I walked down that aisle. And uh, as I got closer to them, that young man's eyes got wide, you know. He didn't know what I was going to do. But what I'd done, I got, he's on the outside. I got there and I put my hand on his shoulder and just stood there and preached for a while. Maybe, maybe three, four minutes, not long. And then I just backed up, never said a word to him. And got back in the pulpit, and they paid attention the whole rest of the time. And uh, I, I thank God for your attention, and I pray that what I have to say will be of some benefit. I'm a simple preacher. My subject is a simple subject this morning, and uh, I, my subject is saving faith. I want to talk to you a little bit about saving faith this morning. 
Faith, of course, is defined in different ways by different people. And, of course, it's even uh, different in the Bible. Uh, faith, uh, there's more than one kind of faith that Paul was writing, talking about the gifts. And in that list of gifts, he said the, uh, the gift of faith and the gift of miracles and so on. And he asked a question, you know, does, does, does everybody have these? And, of course, the implied answer to every one of those questions is no. Not everybody has faith for healing. Not everybody has faith for miracles. Not everybody, my friend, has uh, faith for various things uh, in, in an extraordinary way. But there's one thing that every one of us must have, and that's saving faith. And that's faith in God, my friend, that saves us. By saving faith, I, I mean more than believing. You know, there's... Uh, uh, the Bible needs to be accepted intellectually. Uh, you, you have to have a certain uh, level of understanding before you ever can be saved. And, and whatever level of understanding that that is, then you have to believe that. But faith is more than believing. It is believing. It is believing. But it's more than believing. And in fact, the words that are translated in the New Testament, and I'm not, I don't have any notes about that, and uh, I, I don't want to take time to, to go into all that, but the, some of the words that are used to describe faith uh, are also translated committed unto the trust of. And, 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 and faith is trust. It's committing something to someone else. It's uh, uh, in the New Testament sense of saving faith. We are committing the salvation of our soul to another person, and that's Jesus. We're, we're trusting him. We, as I've often said, we, we put all of our eggs in one basket, and that's Jesus. And everything, we're committing the keeping of our soul unto God. But faith, my friend, does include believing, but it's more than that. It's trusting. And I'll get into those uh, a few things a little bit later on. But I wanted you to understand a little bit of what I mean by saving faith. By saving faith, I mean the faith it takes to be saved. Now, that's more than believing, because the Bible says the devils believe and tremble. It's more than believing intellectually the truth of the Bible. It's more than believing the, and accepting the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ that he came to bring. And it is that. It always includes believing. But it's more than that. And sometimes, my friend, we get... People at the altar and we pray with them and they're struggling. Some of them are struggling with giving up sin. Some of them are struggling with faith. And, and, and sometimes we just say, just believe. Just believe. Well, it's more than that. It's, it actually is. It's more than that. And sometimes, my friend, we can, we can cut 
the process of salvation short before the person really has saving faith. And they get up from the altar, they believe they're saved, but they're not. And they haven't exercised saving faith. They haven't exercised faith that will bring a change, bring a empowering, and bring salvation. You can believe the gospel in an intellectual sense and not be saved. When the Bible speaks about a believer, it, it's speaking about somebody beyond that point. They don't only intellectually accept it, but they have yielded themselves to it and, uh, and believe it, as we would say, believe it with their heart. And that includes not just intellectually accepting it, but that includes, my friend, a choice. And that is that this message we heard, we choose. I am going to trust that. I am going to trust that message. I am going to believe that God, my friend, has forgiven me. And I'm going to trust him for that. I'm going to put my confidence in him. Saving faith is a kind of faith that brings deliverance from sin and restores fellowship with God. Saving faith brings you into a relationship that is brand new, something you never had before, something you never experienced before. Saving faith, my friend, when we exercise saving faith, it, it begins the process of sanctification which is deliverance from sin, not only forgiveness of our past sins, but deliverance from the power of present sin. Saving faith brings us to that point where that change occurs. We call it the new birth, we call it regeneration, but what it is is saving faith, my friend, brings us to a place where there actually is a change, where something happens to you that never happened before. Something takes place in your heart and mind that was absent before. It was something that you had never had before. And it also restores fellowship with God. And by that, saving faith brings us into a relationship with God that we never had. Now, when we're under conviction, we have a certain relationship with God. The Holy Spirit is talking to us, convicting us, convincing us, and bringing us to a place of repentance and faith so that we can be saved. But saving faith, my friend, is a kind of faith that produces a change in our heart and life. The gift of salvation, my friend, is available to us because of God's grace and mercy. The only reason that this change and this salvation is available to us is because of God's grace and mercy. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's something, my friend, that, that God gives freely. It's a gift. Well, I'll read you 
And, and this is in Ephesians, the second chapter, the eighth verse. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Here it says, by grace are we saved through faith. The grace, my friend, is God's gracious nature. God's mercy, God's kindness, that's his grace. And we're saved by grace, but the avenue through which it comes to us is through faith. By grace, for by grace are you saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift. And by that I mean You cannot possibly purchase it. There's no way, there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can give, my friend, that will purchase salvation. It's a free gift. Salvation, my friend, could never be ours if it were not for the generosity of God. If God, my friend, was not who He is, If he was not who he is, we could never, my friend, have had salvation. 2 Corinthians 9, chapter 15, verse. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. There's no words to describe it. Unspeakable means it's beyond words. Have you ever had something that, that you'd love to tell about, but you didn't have the words? You'd love to express to somebody so that they could understand, but you just didn't have the words. Well, that's the way salvation is. Now, we try, we try and we do the best we can to describe, my friend, salvation. But really, there's no words to to really explain it in its fullness. It's so hard, my friend, to try to explain to somebody that's unsaved, never, never has experienced salvation. It's hard to explain to them exactly what it is like. Those, we, in our testimony, we try to do that, and we ought to. But thank God for his unspeakable gift. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's the ultimate gift. Uh, God, God, there are many gifts. Uh, and when I say salvation, I'm using that in its broadest sense. A forgiveness, empowering, with victory over sin, uh, all the rest, guidance, uh, encourage, everything that we receive from God, of course, is a gift. But the ultimate gift is eternal life. Eternal life. This gift, listen to me, is not received as an automatic, involuntary act. It isn't just that God comes to you and just says, 
Here it is, and hand it to you, and you got it. You take it, put it in your pocket. It, it's by, by involuntary, automatic involuntary. I mean like the gift that God gives us of breathing, seeing, hearing. Uh, you know, those are, those are gifts that we have to enjoy life and to understand life. But they're automatic. They're involuntary acts. But this gift is not received in that way. Our part in receiving this gift is to accept it through faith. That simply means we have something to do. We have something to do to receive God's gift. And it's just not an automatic thing. You know, we say Jesus died for the whole world. That's true. Uh, but that just gives the potential salvation. That doesn't mean the whole world's going to be saved. There's, there's something for people to do before that salvation becomes a reality in their heart and life. And there's two, actually there's two requirements. Repent and believe the gospel. Repenting and saving faith. Those are the two requirements and they're things that we must do. And when we are commanded to do something... It always, it always involves our will. Uh, that's the only way we can obey. The only way we can obey is choose to do it. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's the only thing we can do. And what we do, we choose, my friend, to repent. And that simply means it involves several things, but it's confession. And that in itself is not repentance but confessing our sins, and then also turning from our sins. Repentance means, my friend, a turning away from sin and a turning to God. And so those are, those are things, that's the first thing we have to do, confess and turn. You can never be saved until you come to the place that you, are, you choose, my friend, to give up everything. And I mean that without reserve. To give up everything that you know is wrong. If you come to the altar and begin to pray and asking God, you're seeking salvation, asking God or seeking, seeking Him in at your home. If you do not come to that place where you're willing, you choose. You choose. It's more than a desire. A desire, my friend, is in our feelings. But this is something that our will does. It's a choice. It's more than feeling. It's more than a desire. It's a choice. I, I don't only desire to give up my sin. I choose to do so. I choose to give up everything. Now, you may not know everything when you get saved. And thank God, and that's, that's true of every one of us. As you live for Christ, you'll find out there's other things along the way. And our, our, our consecration to God and our repentance and our uh, abandoning sin is an ongoing thing. As we receive new light and new understanding, 
we take on some things because God said do them, and we lay off some other things because God said don't do them. But that's a growing process. But before you can be saved, you have to give up everything you know is wrong at that time. Now, your knowledge may be faulty, and it is. All of our knowledge is faulty. None of us have perfect knowledge. But, but in your heart of hearts, you're willing. That's the part of salvation that is involved in counting the cost. Before I was saved, I counted the cost. I thought of the places I was going, the things I was doing, and, and what I had to give up, how I had to change my life, what I was, I couldn't go to some places anymore, couldn't do some things anymore, and some of those things I, I found enjoyment in. But I worked my way through that until I come to the place that I was willing to turn from all of that. All of that sin. And that is, that's one requirement. That's the repentance. But there's also the believing. And the faith. You can, you can come to the place where that you're willing to give up sin. But you just don't have faith. You just don't believe that God really loves you. That God really forgives you. And uh, I'll get to that. But I, that's where I had my struggle. I'll just say it and then maybe get into it in more detail. But when I, that morning, as a 17-year-old boy in the hills of Kentucky, I was in the barn. I was throwing loose hay down to feed the mule and the cows. And as I was pitching that hay down, I said to myself, if I can get saved, I'm going to get saved today. If I can get saved, I'm going to get saved today. I made a choice then to turn. I had, I had come through actually several months of counting the cost under a process that we call conviction, you know, being under conviction. But I'd come through several months Counting the cost, what what it meant. Not only did I have to give up things, but I had to start doing things. Like reading the Bible and praying and going to church and so on. I knew there were some things I had to do as well as some things I had to give up. And so I came to that place. But when I came to the altar, my problem was not repenting. I was ready to forsake sin. But my problem was, I couldn't believe. I'm going to go ahead and tell the story. I was going to tell it later, but I'm going to tell it now. That morning when I went in to the church, I lingered in the Sunday school class. My pastor at that time was also the youth uh, Sunday school class teacher. And I waited till I was the last one out of the room. And he stood at the door, shook each teenager's hand and when I come to him I said brother Isom I said I'd like to get saved he said praise the Lord he said he shut the door and said let's sit down here and we talked to be honest with you some of the things he said I did not understand at all he talked about 
regeneration. I, I had no, really, I had no real understanding of that. He talked about new birth and so on. And I come from an unsaved home, uh, from a divided home. My mother and father had divorced, and uh, they never took us. We never said grace at the table. They never, I don't remember one time my mom or dad ever took us to church. And my dad was an alcoholic. That's what led to the, to the divorce. And no, I'm just, I'm just, I don't want to go too long, Brother Bartlett. Uh, Coaching me about that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm an old-fashioned preacher. Sometimes I preach long. But I have a lot to say. I will say this, that I didn't believe anybody really loved me. After my mom and dad divorced, we lived with our mother. The courts awarded us there was four of us children. I was the oldest and awarded us to our mother. She remarried and my stepfather uh, didn't have a steady job. Uh, to make a long story short, they lost the home. That we, I, I remember a time when they, people, the collection agency come and gathered up some of the furniture in our home and so on. But uh, one Saturday morning, without any warning at all, my stepfather come into the bedroom, had some boxes and some paper sacks, and said, get up, put all your stuff, all your toys, everything you own in these boxes, all of your clothes and everything, put them in this, and said, we can no longer take care of you. And my mother never, never came in that, that morning. Uh, I did go into her bedroom and said goodbye to her. But he put us, put us kids in his car and all of our stuff in the trunk and so on and pulled out to my grandma Yoder's and parked in front of their house. And he got out and never went to the door. He just got out started setting all that stuff on the sidewalk. And Grandma come out and said, what are you doing? And he said, we can no longer take care of these kids, and if you can't, put them in the children's home. And Grandma said she was in her early 60s at that. She said, I can't take care of these kids. My dad worked on the railroad. He come home that evening, and uh, I heard them talking. I was 11 years old at that time, and the other siblings were younger than I was, down to my sister. She was about five. And, and she's saying to my dad, I can't take care of these kids. You've got to do something. And I remember dad calling the county judge. I can still in my mind's eye see him. And, excuse me, 
He called the county judge to get us put in the children's home. Thank God they didn't have no room for us. <laughs> and so Grandma, Grandma did after there was no other, no other alternative. My Grandma did take us in and took care of us. And my dad lived with my grandparents at that time. And my younger, the three younger, they were all crying. And I was the oldest. I was 11. And they looked to me, you know. They looked to me for support. And that's how, that's how families are, you know. They look to the oldest son or daughter or older sometimes. And they said, what's going to happen to us, Kenny? What's going to happen to us? And I kept saying, don't worry. Don't worry. Everything's going to be all right. And I didn't believe that. And I wasn't crying because I was trying to help them. But I'll tell you what, I did cry later that night when when we went to bed. But I thought, nobody loves us. Mom, give us up. My dad tried to get us put in the children's home. If my mom and dad don't love me, who will? Who can? And I... uh, that embittered me uh, before I was saved. That embittered me. And, and I've, I, I've begun to face in life, nobody's going to take care of me, so I've got to take care of myself. Now, I'd done some things when I was in sin. It was mean, and uh, I'll not get into that. But it was because I felt nobody loved me. That left an emotional mark on my life. When I came to the altar that morning, I couldn't believe God loved me. How could God love me? My mom and dad don't love me. How could God love a sinner like me? We prayed. Thank God, you know, the brethren back then, when they prayed, they'd ask me, say, you satisfied? And I said, no, I'm not satisfied. I wouldn't have been satisfied with anything less than something that's real. Something that's real. My struggle was with faith. And I told the brethren, both of them have gone on to their reward now. But... Those that prayed with me at the altar that morning were dear friends later in life. And I said, I can't believe that God loves me. To me, it was incredible, unbelievable. The Creator, the Holy, magnificent. God, how could he love me? 
How could he love me? They told me, he said, Kenny, you've got to believe what the Bible says. They read a few scriptures. And after several seasons prayer, I don't know how long, but I was there for a while. And finally I told the Lord, I said, it's hard for me to believe this, but I'm going to accept it on the strength of your word. You said that you loved us and that you would forgive us. And when I come to that place, I'll tell you what I've done. I chose to believe God's word. That's what I've done. And that's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is more than just a sentimental feeling. It's believing what God has said. It's something, my friend, that, 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 that's real. And when I, when I made that choice, like I said, I wasn't struggling with giving up sin. Sometimes people come to the altar, I prayed with them, and I can tell there's something that they're not willing to give up. I mean, I can tell. I can tell the way they're praying. There's just something they're hung up on. And sometimes they try to go around it. But you've got, to, you've got to face that. But I didn't face that. I'd already counted the cost. My problem was saving faith. Believing what God has said in his word. Well, I <clears throat> messed up my message. <laughs> I preached the last part at the beginning. But... I want you to understand what I'm trying to say. There's such a thing as saving faith. There's such a thing, my friend, as faith that saves us. Amen? Our part in receiving God's gift is accepting it through faith. Saving faith is completely trusting ourselves to Jesus for salvation. It's putting, as I already said, everything into him. Now, we must be sufficiently enlightened, my friend, uh, to understand our need of forgiveness or understand our need of being in fellowship with God. But then, after we understand that, then we must personally receive Jesus as our Savior. By believing and trusting in the gospel message. And that's more than a trip to the altar. I'm going to tell you something. So many times in our day and time, people come. Excuse me just a minute. Come to an altar. And we don't really linger there until they're really saved. They think they are, and we think they are. But sad, sometimes, subsequently, especially when you're trying to lead them into a deeper Christian life, they don't want to go 
Well, it's because they didn't begin right. I'm, I'm being honest with you. So many times, my friend, we just... We used to accuse other people of easy believism, but it's invaded our churches. <laughs> it really has. This act of faith, we transfer to Jesus all of the guilt of our sinful life. And we depend entirely upon the merits of his death for forgiveness. Amen. Amen. I'm trying to think of where I should go from here. I mean, I've got I've got a lot of things down here, but God give me wisdom. I am going to go to one thing. I'm going to skip over a section and add my notes, but James in the second chapter, the Bible teaches that faith and works are something that are inseparable. The only way you can tell whether you have saving faith is whether or not it changes your life. Somebody said, I feel like I'm saved. I, I asked God to forgive me, and I believe he forgave me, and I'm saved. Well, I feel good about it. Well, that's all well and good, and it may be true, but it also may be false. You may be deceiving yourself. You may be believing a lie, my friend, and not be saved at all. The one thing that you can tell when you're saved is it changes your life. It produces works of righteousness. It produces a life, my friend, that is willing to obey God, to walk in His ways, <coughs> to keep His word. It brings you into a relationship with God. That is nurtured by your prayer life. Are you claiming to be saved and don't have no prayer life? <clears throat> you ought to question that if that's true. You ought to question that. Because saving faith and salvation brings us into fellowship with God. And that a relationship with God. And that is nurtured by Prayer, and also the reading of the Word. But that's how we nurture that relationship. Amen? James, again, for second chapter, I begin reading in verse number 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? The answer, of course, the implied answer to that is No! Just simply believing that you're saved, if, if it's without works of righteousness, then it is not genuine. And then he gives an illustration, said, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding, 
You give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Nothing. It's just words. And he's using that as an illustration of faith without works. It's just words. It's not reality. Even so, and he's referring back to this illustration. Even so, if it hath not works, it's dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then he gives the illustration of Abraham and then also of Ahab, Rahab the harlot, how that both were justified by works. And then he sums it up in the 26th verse, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That's why I said faith and works are inseparable. You can't have, you can't, you can't really have one without the other. They're inseparable. If a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him, as I said? Answer is no. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, verse 17, is dead, being alone. Works are essential and necessary to saving faith and living faith as much as breath is an element of a living body. Show me thy faith without works, and that demand is impossible. (laughs) How can you show your faith with no works? All is words. It's all. It's just words. The only way that you can show, my friend, is by works. The devils also believe, but their belief is only intellectual uh, acknowledgement of the truth. Demons and devil, the devil and his demons know the truth. But it's only intellect. It, it does not change them. It does not save them. Amen. It doesn't lead to obedience to God. And so it is. If all we have is intellectual understanding. <laughs> it's worth nothing. Paul warned against being deceived along this line, believing that a Christian can be a true Christian and live in sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, adulterers, or infeminate, Abusers of themselves and mankind, that's homosexual activity. Nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, and such were some of you, but you washed and you sanctified, you justified in the name of the Lord Jesus 
and by the Spirit of our God. Don't be deceived about this. This is what Paul's saying. Don't be deceived about this matter. People who don't live right are not truly been saved. People that continue to live in sin. And he mentioned several of them here. You can't live in these sins and inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you may believe it. You may say, oh, I know I'm saved. Even though I occasionally indulge in some of these things. I know I'm saved. You're deceived. You believe in a lie. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Saving faith brings about works of righteousness and holiness in our life. Amen? And the last thing I want to mention is saving faith is personal faith. My friend, in God's merciful grace. It's a personal thing. There's two kinds of faith along this line, and I'm just saying this in, in a way of trying to illustrate something. But there's two kinds of faith. Uh, one I call general, and the other I call personal. General faith is that God loves the world, all mankind. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the general faith, believing that God loves everybody. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is believing that God saves you. God saves you. God loves you. That's saving faith. You can believe that God loves the world without believing that God loves you. Personal faith is God specifically and personally loves me. (laughs) You know, that's what it is. God loves me. Paul said in Galatians, the second chapter, 20 verse, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now Paul's bringing it down on a personal level. First he's saying, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead, but he said, I'm really not dead, I'm alive, but it's Christ that's living in me. I don't have time to explain that, but what he's saying is that the life that he was living was created by an empowering of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's, that, is, that is Christ in us. But he said, I live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just like Paul was the one that Christ died for. That's saving faith. God loves me. Not that God loves everybody. That's a wonderful truth. But... It doesn't save us. Saving faith comes down on a personal level. 
where it says, God loves me. You know, as I said, faith is something that you do. And therefore, it's a voluntary choice to believe and to trust God for your salvation, your forgiveness, because of the merits of Jesus. As I said, I could not believe that God loved me. I've already told that story. I intended to tell it here. But I've already told it, and I'm not going to repeat it. But after several seasons of prayer, I chose to trust God. One of the verses that those brethren read to me was 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They had the Bible at the altar, and they just opened it up and showed me. This is what God says. You've got to believe it. You've got to accept it. To be saved. I came to the place where I actually believed and trusted that God loves Kenneth Yoder. God loves Kenneth Yoder. Not that God loves the world. Saving faith is a personal faith. It be, you believe that God loves you. <laughs> Some of you may have, had, may have the same problem. I've known of Christians that struggle with whether or not God really loves them. And the enemy, uh, he attacks that. Ah, every every, every uh, discouraging, uh, tragic thing that happens in our life, the devil comes and says, hey, this, this wouldn't have happened if, you, if God really loved you. He, he keeps trying to undermine that. He has in my life. And he finds in me a weakness. Because as I already explained to you, I kind of grew up believing nobody loved me. And the devil has attacked it. But the greatest truth to me in all the world, and those of you who heard me preach very often, know. I've repeated this time and again. The greatest truth in all the world to me is God loves Kenneth Yoder. There's no greater truth in all the world than that. To me, that God loves Kenneth Yoder. <laughs> now, I'm glad and I'm happy God loves you also. But the thing that thrills my soul is that God loves Kenneth Yoder. And that he was willing to give himself for me. I remember one time I was praying and I was in revival, seeking God for anointing and seeking God for power to persuade people to believe the truth and to get them to accept God and His way of life. And, and this was, I was preaching in this revival. I preached in the morning a series on what it takes to have a revival. And then the evening, I just preached, well, whatever evangelistic message or message to the church, something else. 
uh, just a message that was on my heart. But I was bringing a series of lessons. And the question I was wrestling with that morning, and I had my Bible before me on the bed. Uh, the morning service was over and the pastor uh, was in another part of the house. His wife was in the kitchen preparing a meal. And I was in the bedroom praying. And I laid this Bible, not this one, but the Bible before me. And I was praying. And the question I had in mind, I said, God, how is it possible for you to change the heart of a careless, indifferent sinner? Here's somebody, he's careless, he's indifferent, he don't care a thing about God. He don't care a thing about living right. How do you save him? How do you save him? That was the question I was dealing with. How do you save that person? And instead of answering me directly, I had an experience that morning that uh, there's no, there's, it's an unspeakable experience. Uh, no words that I'm going to say to you can describe uh, what happened that morning but as I was praying the passage I was reading was in Hebrews where it says that Jesus tasted death for every man Jesus in the cup of tribulation and death when Jesus said that he would drink this cup what he meant was he would accept my friend, the experience of death, the experience of humiliation, the experience of suffering, whipping, all the rest of it. The whole thing that's involved in Jesus' crucifixion. And in that cup that he drank, there was a sip for me. He tasted death for everyone. And as I was reading and meditating on that scripture with this question in my mind, God, and, and I can't explain it, but God reminded me of all my sinful life. In, in just, a, just a few minutes, all those things that I had done that was, that was wrong and the sinful life I had lived, everything had just come back to me and, and I seen what a terrible sinner I was. And I cried out. I said, why, God? Why didn't you just send me to hell? I deserved. I deserved to go to hell. Why, Lord, didn't you send me to hell? And the answer came back almost immediately when I made that cry to God. And said, because I love you. And I'm telling you, everything in me became liquid love and flowed out to God. I can't explain to you. I can't explain to you what that done for me. And God said, do you see how I can change a sinner's heart? I convince him I, I love him, even though he's undeserving. 
even though he deserves to go to hell, I love him. And it's my love that changes. You cannot appreciate the love of God if you have never seen yourself worthy of hell. I don't know about you, but I know I deserve to go to hell. That I know. But because God loved me, he saved me. And even though to me, at one time, this was incredible. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. Uh, it's just so hard for me to believe that. And yet, when I accepted it as being true, a change came to me. When I put my whole heart trust in that truth, God changed me. Saving faith will produce forgiveness of all your sins and a relationship with God. Now, I know that's just simple. That's fundamental. That's something, my friend, that's very basic. But sometimes we forget that without faith, there can be no salvation. And faith, and I'm going to close momentarily, but faith is more than believing. Faith it it it, invo- it 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 includes believing. It wouldn't be faith if you didn't believe. But it's more than that. It is that, but it's more. It's trusting. It's trusting that truth with all your heart. With all your heart. God forgives us. Because of a, of a change of heart towards him in repentance and faith. And he, because of the merits of Christ's death, God can in justice forgive us. There are people in hell who did not sin as much as I have. The difference between me and them is Jesus. I'm not going to go. When we get to the judgment, they're going to say, Hey, when our life is reviewed by God, and God brings up anything that he thinks is, in his wisdom, brings up anything at the judgment. There's going to be people look at my life and say, he's worse sinner than I was. How come is he saved and I'm not? And the answer to that is because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Father,
I preach this message to try to encourage people to trust you, to trust you for salvation. I pray that if there's anyone here that has never exercised saving faith, that you'd bring them to that place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing a verse or two of song, Justin? God bless you, dear friend. God bless your heart. going to say a couple things and then sing one more verse and then dear friend I am convinced that there are many in our pews and several in our pulpits across the land and country that do not know what it is to be a Christian they're deceived. And I, 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 feel, I feel sorry for them. I, I'm sorry that, that they've never had to face the truth, really. We, we read about it all the time. If professing Christians in this country were true Christians, <laughs> we'd see a change, believe me, a big change. We wouldn't be seeing debates in some of our major denominations over whether or not to accept uh, homosexual preachers, bishops, etc. But I'm going to bring it down to you this morning. Now, listen to me. If you come up, anybody here, if you come up and say, Brother Yoda, do you believe I'm saved or not? I'm not going to answer that question because I can't. I cannot. 
I hope that every one of you that believe you're saved, I hope that you are. I, I really do. But there is a possibility that you could think you were saved when you were not. Now, I'm not going to go any farther, not repeat anything I've said. I'm just going to leave it with you. Friend, there's too much at stake to be mistaken here. There's too much at stake to be mistaken about what I preached this morning. Just in one more verse and then...